Welcome to No Tax Podcast. I'm Tom Lee. I am Chell Ravens. I thought you weren't going to say anything for a minute. I thought you were just going to like... I snapped into action just a microsecond too late because that's how tired I am. This is it. Uh, big big question for a big guest. Shall who's on your who's on your Mount Rushmore of music journalists? <laughs> um, this guy I, has to be on it, otherwise it gets awkward. Oh yeah, okay, good point. Yeah, well, um, say him last. I I wouldn't really want to set in stone, if you will, who my four favorite music journalists ever are. But do I don't know really. Do I even want to go through all the other ones? I can't think now. Hang on. If this was your four, you know, if this was like the letterboxed equivalent where you just put your four. Your top four films in. Your top four. But it was a letterboxed where you rate and review music do you know, journalists. Do you know what? Here's, here's the thing. Here's the problem. Present company accepted, of course. Um, there aren't that many great music journalists operating no, in the not. world right now. You know? There aren't that many. And there aren't that many, like, good publications with a kind of good output of well-edited pieces. We know this. This is partly why we're doing this podcast. Yes. Um Probably, I would say, on my Mount Rushmore would be a historic great Ellen Willis, whose essay. Did, was I talking to you about her essay on Dylan? I no, think I mentioned this to you. The you must have been. Oh. This, this feels like a you and Finn conversation. Look, if you haven't read Ellen Willis on Dylan, doesn't matter if you don't like Dylan; it's irrelevant. Then that is what music writing can be. But as for a modern day equivalent, for me, one of our greats, one of our living greats, is Jeff Weiss of Passion of the Weiss. Here's the thing about Jeff is it's not just that he's a great prose stylist, which he is, and it's not just that he is covering music from the you know the, the deserved level of attention to detail, you know, providing you historical context, balancing opinion with some form of original research and reporting. But it's I mean it's it's this it's this element of reporting and the fact that he goes and finds a story and there are very few music journalists working today who really even have the resources to be able to go and find a story but he is a proponent of a type of boots on the ground reporting that tells stories in a way that very few people are able to do right now and largely that is his rap writing but more recently for example his um sort of 12 12, odd words for spin on the grateful dead's final tour dead and company's final tour this, Why this, do we always end up talking about the Grateful Dead it's weird, in our intro? I still I feel even, like I've never I've, even really listened to them. I've probably. never listened to the Grateful Dead. I've given Dead. it a go and I'm like, it's not, it should be for me. Yeah. But, it is very you spiritually, I right? think, the Dead. But yeah, I'm like, mm, leave me Maybe because just not It's because I'm so hardcore Velvet Underground and they hated the Grateful Dead yeah. that I just feel like a spiritual allegiance 50 years on. Anyway, Mr. Jeff Weiss um, kindly agreed to be on our podcast and we knew we were going to be. Well, we were quite we were excited, weren't we? Yeah, I mean, he's one. Look, he's one of the greats. Like, I don't even think I have a a a music journalist around Rushmore. (laughs) I like to see like a sandcastle than a Mount Rushmore, maybe. Fucking hell, yeah. Um, But Jeff is definitely one of the greats. I think he is. I think he's the best of his generation of our time. Um, Not just because he writes in such an amazing way, which, as we go into in this episode, is probably more well I think definitely more inspired by literature yeah um, than it is other music writing which I think gives him like a really unique tone and voice but he is just someone who is so committed to covering what he thinks needs to be covered breaking important stories um, chronicling which which is a word we talk about a lot he's just someone that's clearly driven by a higher purpose and yeah I mean this is a long interview we get into a lot um, the Jeff Apocalypse. The Jeff Apocalypse. Yeah, we talk a lot about, <laughs> you know, we talk a lot about his website, Passion of the Weiss, which is one of the few remaining 
Um, blogs. DIY, yeah, blogs, DIY music platforms. Mm. If you are not familiar with it, you should get familiar. Mm. It is 100% deserving of your support. It's brilliant. Um, but we get into just a ton more. We get into... State of the Nation stuff, really, isn't it? State, State of the, the Nation, but also his um, book he's writing on Britney Spears yes. at the moment. I think we actually get some really interesting exclusives on <laughs> other do. projects he has coming up, which we won't spoil in this intro. But yeah, it's just a super interesting, super righteous conversation. And um, yeah, I think me and Chow both left feeling both drained and inspired, inspired in equal measure. Which is what some of these episodes are doing for me, actually. Yeah, drained and inspired. Exactly. We hope exactly. it leaves you feeling the same, <laughs> dear listener, wherever you may be. <laughs> um, what else do we need to introduce? We should introduce some housekeeping things. Yes. Okay. Let me tell you, if you are not already familiar, about our newsletter. You probably know about it. That may be why you're listening. But we have a newsletter on Substack, uh, substack.com slash notagspodcast, uh, through which you can discover our growing archive of episodes. And if you wish, you can support the show by signing up and you will get some bonus content. Uh, we're going to do playlists. And we're also going to do probably some writing, some yeah. blogging. Yeah. We're, not... we're figuring it out, but there's yeah. going to be... Bonus episodes, transcripts. transcripts of all podcasts, accompanying show podcasts, and probably some bloggy thoughts when and where the uh, when and where inspiration Web hits. Weblogs. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> and you can follow us on No Tags Podcast on all the relevant socials. Thank you to SRP Studios in Soho for letting us record. Thank you to Jennifer Wharton for our theme music. Thank you to All Purpose Studio for our branding. Let's patch in, Jeff. <laughs> Let's hear about this book that you're writing, which I don't think I actually knew about properly until we were researching this. And you said yeah. that it was a Brit- it's a Britney book. Well, it's a it's kind of a fictional ish, half fiction, half reality kind of memoir of uh, the 2000s, and uh, kind of about a tabloid journalist following Britney Spears around, kind of uh, her rise and fall, basically. You know, it, it starts in uh, 1998 when she shoots the "Hit Me, Baby, One More Time" video. And uh, the characters in high school and um, it goes, I don't know if I should say that because I'm like, maybe ruining, but it ends up going <laughs> to the, yeah, you know, um, well, sorry to ruin the surprise guys, but it, it goes until um, takes you through kind of. Don't tell me how life goes off the rails. Yeah. yeah it turns out actually. Um, <laughs> it didn't all work out. <laughs> yeah, there is definitely a chapter seven there. Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, you know, I think. For me, Britney Spears was, uh, you know, everyone's like, why would you write a book on Britney? And there are actually like several personal reasons like uh, that I won't get too deeply into because I'm trying to keep kind of some kind of thing where like, what the fuck? But uh, yeah, there were a lot of personal reasons. And I thought that she was such an apt metaphor for kind of the, the death of the American dream, obviously, and kind of just the psychological rune that gets brought by fame and celebrity and like part of my working theory um that i've had this for a long time is that the three most american americans of the last you know 23 years of this century are britney spears kanye west and donald trump um there i just think you know there are certain people that for whatever reason are just kind of preternaturally attuned and tapped into the zeitgeist and um and as kind of the world continues to crumble like you can kind of see them kind of go off the rails in various ways. And it's it's like not, I don't even think it's any, anyone's, I mean, maybe it's Donald Trump's fault, but the other two, I obviously have a lot more sympathy for, um, even if Kanye turned out to be a Nazi in the end, which, uh, you know, turns out, you know. We actually have a note right here that I was weighing up whether I should ask, which is like, 
does this link to Trump in any way? I was actually thinking a bit in terms of like different approximations, I guess, of stan culture in terms of what happened to Britney and kind of, I guess, Trump's like cult of personality shit. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot. Climaxing in the Capitol riots. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, no, that's the last scene. Yeah, um, Brittany just comes in and kills the QAnon shaman, and uh, you know, it's like once upon a time in Hollywood, you're like, what would, what do you wish would happen? <laughs> you know, um, I mean, there are a lot of. I, I, to me, I feel like when Brittany shaved her head in 2007, that was sort of like a very psychic break, and I remember watching that at the time, just being like, how is that even real? How is that possible? Um, but now you look back on it and you're like, well, of course she shaved her head. And like, it's the most natural response that anyone could do. And I think, um, yeah, I mean, we destroy, I mean, really like Beyonce is the only one who seems to emerge unscathed from that sort of pressure chamber. You know, you think about that, that, uh, you know, Chappelle was another person who obviously not to the same degree, but he sort of lost the plot in my opinion. And I think a lot of other people's opinion and, um, you know, there's that famous like James Lipton inside the actor's studio with him where he's talking about, uh, I, I think, I, I forget who he lists, but he lists like all these like people that are like, you know, strong, brilliant, talented people and just how fame kind of has such a corrosive element. And I think Britney, of all of them, is is definitely the most blameless. You know, she's just kind of like, literally, I'm not, that, she's like, I'm not that innocent, but of course, like she was pretty innocent. You know, she's 16 years old when they bring her into this world and she sort of just like gets kind of run through like this pressure cooker of American life really. And, you know, I've gone back and, um, you know, it's not really a book where like, I didn't like, again, like it, it's somewhere between a novel and a nonfiction book. I didn't want it to, I, I like, I wasn't interested in like, who am I to write a book of essays on Britney Spears? That seemed kind of stupid. And um, I didn't want to do a strict memoir where it's like, let me tell you about my life as a, as a journalist in you know, the two thousands to 2010s. Um, but I just thought something, you know, I, I like kind of like the hybrid stories where it's like, of course, like everyone hates that because, uh, you know, everyone wants something that's like, what exactly is this? You know, and but like to me, all like a lot of the great books, I mean, not to like compare this to Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, because I worked really hard to hopefully not try to write like that because you're a fool if you do. But what is Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas? That's not really a novel. But it's not really nonfiction. It's sort of like this kind of hybrid of the two. So well, he you know. was he, he was trying to write an American dream novel and he couldn't do it. And then he was like, okay, I'm going to turn these two journalist yeah. uh, like journalistic assignments into one one story. I mean, it's quite a similar thing because I'm actually curious about how you what's the maneuver from writing in this journalistic register to moving into semi fictional writing. Like, how did you find that as a as a evolution for your writing? I mean, I always wanted to write like real books. I, to be honest with you, I never set out to be like, I'm going to be a journalist. You know, that, that never was uh, like a thing for me. It just sort of, I, I got out of university and I, I, I started, I already started writing a novel. Basically I was, uh, in school, I was like a baseball player and a kid on my baseball team, uh, had died in a uh, hazing accident and I had, didn't know what a fraternity was. I pledged and depledged a fraternity um, pretty short. Like I, 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 again, was kind of like a, I don't want to say I was sheltered because I grew up in the middle of LA, but I, there were just, there were like, I didn't know what a fraternity was. You know, yeah. it was just very much like, I thought it was just like a bunch of guys drinking beer. I didn't realize it was like this whole like weird cult, mis- like misogynistic death cult kind of vibe. And um, I, I quickly got out of it because all the guys were on my baseball team. And a few years later, this one guy on my baseball team died in a car accident um, on a hazing trip to Las Vegas. And that sort of galvanized me to kind of want to become a writer. And 
Yeah, I was working on a book actually, again, like a fictionalized memoir. I was I was really inspired by um, you know, kind of the traditional cliche things you probably expect, like the beats I was obsessed with. Um, all the stuff that now I guess we would probably call autofiction mm-hmm. is always one of my favorite yeah. stuff. You know, like I love when I discovered E. Babbitts a few years ago, I was like, oh, this is what I've always kind of wanted to write, you know, or uh I don't know if you're y'all are familiar with uh John Reshi, who wrote the book City of Night. Mm-hmm. Yeah, not me. Highly recommended. Um, I actually, uh, it's a, it's sort of a, the best way to describe it is like if it was like if Gone the Road was written by a like a gay male hustler, and um, it's kind of his travels through America in the early '60s, late '50s, and uh, he's still alive. Actually, he's a, uh, I think he's 93 now, John. And you know, we've I, I've interviewed him a few times, and uh, we've gotten to become friends, which is kind of wow. one of the more meaningful things in my life. Yeah, it's an incredible book, and again, like you know, a proto autofiction type book. But not not to say like I know this book is hopefully I have a plot and that's the cool thing about um, using Brittany I suppose is because there's a very um, there's a very clear arc there I guess like my lens is very much just you know I always used to joke like you know my beat is the fall of Rome <laughs> like and uh, <laughs> that it feels very much like that is you know I, I before really Rome like I knew Rome was falling but I, I guess I didn't really like think I'd have to be dodging the bricks this fast. You yeah, know, it's like yeah, a lot of bricks yeah. falling. I thought it would just be kind of like a slow kind of decline, you know, but it's, uh, yeah, it's uh, a free fall. <laughs> yeah, thank God. <laughs> well, it was interesting that you raised that um, first piece that you wrote because we, we found that out. And I was quite interested that the first piece that you wrote is in fact uh, driven by, you know, a story with, I guess, like a, a sense of a, a tragedy and like an injustice in it. It's a, it's a news story, really, as much as anything. True, yeah. So, yeah, we just we wanted to ask as music journalists, how did you end up in, in music journalism? Was that something that had been on your mind as something you would have wanted to do? And also, what did you did you major in English literature, maybe? Uh, I minored in English. I was a history major. So I think that that's sort of where I kind of um, a lot of I, I feel like what I do ends up being sort of like first draft of history, obviously. But um you know, I, for music, I just love music. You know, I grew up in LA in the nineties. So uh, like it was just innate, you know, it was like the classic age of G funk and like Tupac and Dre and Snoop and the dog pound and DJ quick. And it was just such a natural thing. And, you know, I played basketball as well, like most of my life. So, you know, if you're like playing basketball at the, in that era, like it just was like, you know, it was just the ambient atmosphere, you know, kind of surrounding you, you know, you turn on the radio and it was just an exciting time. And I think like, you know, in a lot of ways, it was funny. I had read Vanilla Ice a few years ago, and he was like, the, la- the 90s was the last time that every day, you know, and I was like, kind of, you know what I mean? Like, it was the last time it felt like there was like a real, like, a culture Mood. that wasn't so fragmented. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, and like, kind of that, not to say that like great stuff doesn't break through, obviously it does, but it felt like there was, you know, we're still in some ways like dealing with the fumes of the 90s, whether, I mean, look at Britney, you know, Britney Spears, perfect example, you know, that, she was a 90s artist, you know, originally, and she's now the most popular first week memoirist in the history of time, you know. Uh, yeah, wow. I mean, it, it, I feel like the 90s was maybe like our 60s in a way. For yeah. And um, I don't know, everything since then has just been like so fractured and um, j- just the chaos. And then, you, you know, I, and I feel like the, the Britney element, you know, the book kind of goes up until 08 you know, when she has her, you know, she goes in the conservatorship. And th- that to me is really like the last time, you know, I, I think the first eight years of the 2000s are like this, the shift between analog and digital. And you see it in journalism. And that's sort of what, you, you know, to go kind of to answer your question in a 
predictably long-winded way, like that is how I got into it was journalism was already collapsing. You know, I, I studied history and I studied and I minored in English and I was like, I'm going to be a novelist. You know, I, I thought I was going to be like F. Scott Fitzgerald or something. And then you graduate and you're like, there is no F. Scott Fitzgerald. Like <laughs> that doesn't exist. And even if you were, you could not be that. You know what I mean? Like they're just there's no place for that. There, there was not a, you know, a Bret Easton Ellis even, you know, mm. for like this generation. And, you know, I, I always say I was like. Yeah, name like five novelists under 45. And like, I don't think very many people can do it. You know what I mean? Like, I basically was like, well, I love, um, I loved like music. And I really had like such a deep uh, affinity for hip hop just growing up here and uh, feeling the music kind of in a kind of, in a hopefully like not just profound because it sounds pretentious, but you know, it's like fun. That was like the soundtrack to my parties. I was when I listened to play like basketball and drive around LA. And I just felt like there wasn't, um, especially at the time, you know, this is like really early blog era. I just didn't see that much like the LA weekly would never cover rap at the time. And the LA really? times like they're in the 90s, not really not. I mean, this is in the 2000s, but like they just, they, I mean, they did, but they just, I always felt like the great hip hop coverage was always in the hip hop magazines. Like I grew up reading the source and that was always to me um, just like where I, that it was an education. And yeah. I didn't, you know, I just didn't like, you know, there were people on message boards. I never was like super internet like that. I I, just, I mean, I, I obviously had been on message boards once I got into it, but I didn't know that like there was like this world of like rap nerds, you know, trading verses and talking about like obscure seven inches. And like, I just was like somebody that just loved it, you know? And I was like, well, maybe I can try doing this. And I, I was writing this novel and then I started the blog and I was like, give it a year. And if you can't get to like a, a decent publication after a year, like maybe you just don't have it, you know, like maybe it's time to give it up. And I think it was like a year and I got in the LA weekly and the LA times. And I was like, okay. And then like, I got like, I think when I was like 25, I got, um, remember when they used to have the best American music writing book. I don't know if you guys oh, ever yeah, saw that. Yeah. 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 DeCapo used to do a thing and I was like 25 years old and they, I, I like did a piece on soldier boy and like, you know, of course no one was taking soldier boy serious at the time that that was a fad. And it was about how, Oh, so and I, I kind of like, I, hopefully I had a little bit of prescience there, but I was like, you know, he's kind of invented the future. Yeah. Like right, no one exactly. has gone. Vi yeah. And like, if you look at it, you're like, we kind of, that was the first one where it's like, you know, he came out and he had this YouTube dance and, you know, he had like Soulja Boy merch and like, it was just like a fully formed enterprise from the get go. And like, I don't think and it was like a lot of it, you know, was he was on Collie Park Records, which is an independent uh, Atlanta record label. And obviously I think he got distro through eventually he, they signed Interscope, but yeah, it was, it was, you know, this viral phenomenon. And it was really kind of the first, you know, that, you know, it was like the Lonely Girl era. I don't know if you guys remember like Lonely Girl. Was that like, you You know, it was like a weird, we're just figuring out the internet yeah. time. And I wrote this essay and it got in the book and I was like, okay, I guess you can do this. And then I was like, well, you'll just have your book sold in like a few years though. And you'll, or like, you'll have a screenplay sold. And like, you know, I wrote a screenplay and, you know, you go through, and then you go through a different, you know, meat grinder of LA where they like, you go into like CAA and they're like, you know, and you're this young writer and they're like, oh, you're a genius. You know, you're going to be the next, you know, Paul Thomas Anderson. Oh, so you did, you did this thing. You did the kind of screenwriter. <laughs> I've done, yeah, I've done, I never sold. Yeah. It, I mean, but like, yeah, I had like three agents probably over the years wow. and, you know, I just, I just never was one of those people that, um, 
wanted to be like, oh, I'm, I'm a rep at ICM, you know, pin tweet, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> contact me there. Like, you're like, yeah, you just look at it and you're like, what an asshole, you know, it's like, as it is, I have to kind of like mitigate my naturally insufferable tendencies. So I'm always <laughs> trying to kind of like, don't do that, you know, like don't post a photo there, you know? So I don't know. Um, but yeah, I've, I've definitely, that was always my dream, you know, and hopefully it, I'm hopefully I, it, it still has the possibility, you know, I'm, yeah, you're back, you're back on track now. The novel is coming. The screenplay will yeah, come. Yeah. So the, the music journalism years. diversion is p- perhaps finally yeah. coming to an end. Is that how you yeah. feel about music journalism now? Do you feel kind of like you're a bit distant from it or it's moving away from you in any way? I, I, well, I feel music journalism is uh, kind of distant from all of us. Wow. <laughs> you wow. know, yeah. You know, it, it, it is, uh, we didn't leave music journalism, music journalism left us, you <laughs> know, and it, by the time this comes out, I will have had, you know, I just did an article uh, for The Guardian on Andre 3000. And um, that was really cool. You know, he um, has an instrumental flute album. He showed up for the interview, you know, playing the flute, <laughs> like this massive Mesoamerican woodwind. Yeah, it was a, uh, it was a real trip. And hey, it was that is a dream interview. Jesus yeah. Christ! Totally. No, wow. it was it was a it was a real. I I I'm in book edits, and they offered it to me, and I had yes, to say, yeah. I was like, I can't. I'm sorry. Like, it's going to be two weeks later than I hope. But yeah, I mean, that was one of those things. But even then, like, right, like. Uh, Look, it was an amazing interview, but I got, you know, 2,200 words and I it probably needed four or 5,000 to do yeah. it justice. Mm-hmm. I also got one hour of an interview and a 15 minute like follow up, which I had to like really, you know, grind them down to give me the extra 15 minutes of follow up. I'm glad I did because I got, I got the, the end from it, but I mean, that is not a good way to write a story. That's you know, the state for, of things though, isn't yeah. it? That's what you yeah, get. That is the state of things. I mean, it's not spending yeah, I mean, eight nights with the Grateful Dead, right? <laughs> No, no, no. It's, you know, and even then like that, that's just like, uh, I'm, I'm a, I'm a master of self-sabotage and I spent a month writing that piece and, or three weeks writing that piece. And, you know, I'm late on my book edits partially because of that. And, um, sorry, Jackson, if you're listening, he's not listening. Um, but he, uh, but yeah, no. And like what with the money was, you know, no offense to to spin or whatever, but like the, the money was not worth yeah what I put into it. And I feel like that is what's required now. It's you have to do, you know, kind of more soul sucking work, whether it's like bios or content writing or spawn con to be able to do something that you care about. And at the end of the day, it's like, you know, if you're living, I mean, you guys both live in London. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, you know what it's like. I mean, the cost of urban life is just not feasible for a writer period, like any writer and let alone somebody that's like trying to do stuff that maybe is, you know, underground or kind of slightly subversive, you know, maybe if you got that Taylor Swift beat reporter job, you could afford to live. <laughs> yeah, in Nashville, exactly right. but, you know, yeah. it's uh, the yeah, Hessel audio so. coverage in fact, wasn't quite paying those. Um, I mean, it's heartbreaking. Fact to me was uh, one of the last places that like, you know, I remember the year endless every year and I was like, fact is the only place where I'm learning, you know, where I'm like, I, yeah. what are the, you know what I mean? Like, and, and it had a really cool, like singular sensibility. It didn't feel, and like, that's the other thing too. I feel like, um, the, the weird, cool underground stuff is just, I, I don't know if it's look, there are people doing it. And like, that's, you know, like the, you know, Nobels is doing mm-hmm. really cool yeah. stuff in that. Um, the writer Bill, Bill Diffrin has really cool, has a cool blog. There are people doing it, but you know, hopefully I would put POW in there, but at the same time, it's like, there used to be like 30 of those places, you know what I mean? And now there's like two or three and like, it's like just basically like. And it's as if the mid tier, the kind of the facts the you know, at one point we saw Fader as our kind of biggest competitor, you know, before yeah. Pitchfork went full on just 
Taylor Swift coverage. There used to yeah. be a kind of mid tier that had the, yeah. the newsy stuff, and then you'd have your POW, your uh, tiny mixtapes, whatever, doing kind of weirder stuff, and there was a bit of an ecosystem around it. And now it's just, yeah. There's I mean, just that's so the exact left. word I was going to use. Like, I just feel like it's not an ecosystem anymore. And like, mm. I read POW, yeah. I read No Bells, they're great. There's a couple of other, you know, I obviously read a bunch of people's different Substacks and stuff. Mm. And I'll follow writers. Like, if there's a writer I like that has done something in whatever um, X newspaper, I'll read it. But it's like, it doesn't feel like there's that same inc- ecosystem, those same interactions. It just feels like a series of outliers. Doing cool shit yeah. against all odds. Mm-hmm. Totally. Yeah. I mean, it's funny because like, uh, you know, obviously I have a label, uh, the POW Recordings label. And um, I remember starting that up and like, oh, is it even like, how can I do this as a journalist? And then you're like, well, how could you even do journalism in a meaningful way? Not to say I make all this money off it, but, you know, like I, I don't. I mean, again, that's like. it's. Did it's, you mean, sorry to interrupt. Did you mean that as how can I do this as a journalism in terms of like a conflict of interests or. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it just. It, I had the exact same thought. Just, that, that was yeah. my internal monologue for like the first five years of my label. And that's partially, it's not the main reason I quit journalism, but it's one of them. Yeah. And, and your label is great. Yeah. I mean, and, and it. it I mean, it doesn't like bother me in terms of the conflict of interest element of it because it's just like, I, you know, they're, they're, when I maybe when I was an LA Weekly columnist, you know, I was always very worried. Like, if I wanted to work with somebody, then I should never write about them, which I, you know, I never did, never crossed that line. But yeah, it, it just, even like doing the label where like obviously I have a lot of journalistic contacts, you know, just from doing journalism. And like, I, I think I made a spreadsheet at one point of, you know, hit up these people, you know, and like now I think, not only are 75% of them out of journalism, 75% of the publications they wrote for yeah. no longer exist. Yeah. I have I have had that literal same experience in terms of the spreadsheet yeah. for people to hit up about the label. And you just watch it or like, you just watch the emails bounce back over time. Yeah. And now Bandcamp. Totally. Yeah. I have now, yeah. Right. about like two or three outlets, as it were, remaining, really. It's just... Well, well, it's horrifying, right? I mean, think about the darkness of having to say that, like, well, actually, two of the best journalism enterprises were over the last 10 years were run by a poisonous soda company that made like toxic energy drinks and a basically (laughs) e-commerce site for MP3s that don't even really exist in any kind of meaningful way. People just being like, yeah, I'll support you. And, um, you know, it's hard. I don't want to be like negative. And I, I really admire the people that are like you were having a blog renaissance and like Substack, but it's like man i don't know like you know what's cool like budgets for journalism yeah. <laughs> like like young thug is having a trial like in three weeks and i think like i have now covered two rap murder trials um the first one was little boosie in 2012 and um that was for rolling stone and you know of course the person that i worked with is no longer in journalism and nothing against her she's a lovely person but they had no budget for me and i ended up i think getting paid like i want to say like 700 dollars, and i ended up spending maybe like three or four thousand dollars of my own money on hotels to this is when you were in this was when you were in baton rouge right yeah yeah and that was a really formative experience for me and again like that's been most of my career is like working really really hard for six to eight months doing this kind of quixotic kind of like journalism thing that i shouldn't be doing for monetary reasons but i i feel like i have to i do it um make no money uh and then go back to the cycle to make the money again yeah and then i went to uh obviously i did the draco murder trial mm-hmm. again which you know that i mean money was you know that was the furthest thing from my mind it was obviously you know trying to help raise attention to a case that i thought was a total miscarriage of justice and um but even then you know it was 
you know, if you break down the hourly rate, I mean, maybe I was making what I would have made in a McDonald's at best. Mm-hmm. And um, it was like not, you know, and driving to and from every day and the whole thing. But yeah, I, I was trying to get someone to co- let me cover the Young Thug trial. And everyone was just like, yeah, we well, don't have the budget to fly you out to Atlanta. Or or if it was like a mainstream publication, they don't see like the the value in a young thug. You know what I mean? They just right. don't understand what he meant. You know, I think they hear the name Young Thug and they like roll their eyes or whatever. But, you know, even still to this day. But yeah, obviously, I mean, Young Thug, what's going on there is insane and, and a total continuation of you know, the, the Draco stuff I was doing, but just there, there are no budgets, you know, I, or I could do it for a publication that, you know, people would, I don't even want to say names, but like a publication that people would definitely like, be like, oh, you're covering it for them. And like, mm-hmm. I, it, it just, it's a very, it, it has felt like kind of a black rain cloud. Now I think um, going back to young, Cla- the young thug, I always think of like 2015 as like the last, like I think of 2008 as like the year where like, okay, we're now like moving into like a dark, weird region that we haven't figured out but then you obviously you know i'm I'm nothing unfortunately if not like hyper american so i you know think of but like obama gets elected and you kind of see this hope and i you know i Mm -hmm. honestly thought like about 2008 to 2015 was you know like the warning signs were definitely there in the 2000s like you could see the you could see where this was all going but it looked like maybe we're gonna kind of have like a kind of like empire strikes back or excuse not an empire strikes back but like sort of um you know, the rebels kind of striking back in some way. And, you know, obviously there were elements of, you know, the blog era, you know, allowing, especially, you know, 2008 to 2012, you know, it's kind of the blog era type thing where like, oh, okay, well, these, the the majors are not understanding what these, in, you know, these indie blogs are doing and yeah. blah, blah, blah. What is the blog and then, era? And it's the mixtape era, right? Like it's the Dat Piff era. And yeah, like that was just exactly so exciting, I think, to everyone. I mean, oh, for sure, yeah. It's funny, I had a conversation yeah. recently, so I was with, I'm sure you know, but Rob Percy from Southern Hospitality, who is... Definitely. yeah, yeah. So I'm, I'm, awesome. I'm 37, Rob is, I think, 45. So he's a generation older than me, and we're with our friend Rachel, who is like 28, 29. He's got three generations of people that... And we all were talking about that era and how it was like the last time that we felt we had this like healthy, passionate relationship with just like absorbing new music mm. at that rate. And it was that Definitely. that pit era, and it was crazy to me that... Three people from completely different generations, roughly 10 years apart either way, all honed in on that one era from like, let's well, say yeah. 2000 and let's say 2010 to like 2014 ish. So I think there's, there's something in that. Oh, I mean, definitely. And obviously, you know, you guys being in London, I mean, for me, like just being an Angelino, like hearing what was, you know, coming on like Marion Hobbs' show every mm. week, you know, I tune into that like breathlessly kind of being like, oh, who's the next artist from like the UK, but she'd be discovering new artists from LA. And then I'd go to Low in Theory. And like, you know, that was just like a, such a groundswell of like excitement and creativity. And it felt like, you know, it just, you know, you're always, you know, you know like I was talking to, when I was talking to Andre, I was like talking to him about the Seymour Skinner meme, you know, the principal Skinner meme where he's like, oh, the, um, yeah, I, yeah. is it I out of touch? No, <laughs> no it's, it's the, the children. Kid, you know? yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, and Andre's like, I've never heard of that. I'm like, well, it's a good no, meme. Uh, <laughs> you know, like awkward on. silence, you know, <laughs> like, uh, but yeah, no, nah, it um I love that he could be so insulated that it's like know, the one of the like top three like, Simpsons yeah. movies is like, I have simply it's never like, heard of that. I sure. got sick of Hey Yar and I just decided to play flute for the last ten years and not watch <laughs> yeah. I mean what an oh, it's so inspiring. I mean I it's like I wish I had the money, uh but I'm sure like that I mean I'm sure that's what that outcast two thousand fourteen tour was. Like I'm gonna get enough money where I can play flute for the rest of my life. And like it, he deserves it. Yeah. So so I love to see uh, last year that you interviewed uh, the great Mike Davis. 
That was yeah. an interesting, uh, well, I guess it, maybe not an assignment. Maybe you assigned it to yourself, actually. I did. Uh, <laughs> I did assign it to myself. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah the, the great um, Marxist historian and geographer. And yeah, it'd be interesting to hear a bit about why why someone like Mike Davis is important to you and what we can kind of learn from from that uh, lens of uh, like looking at city, maybe. Yeah, he I mean, he is probably the uh, great doom prophet of L.A. life. I mean, he, he's, he's rarely been wrong when it comes to like L.A. life. You know, I remember reading uh, City of Courts maybe in the early 2000s. And I felt like it was maybe a little like, uh, I don't know. I, I just felt like it maybe was like it was just a different era and like in the way that L.A. felt and seemed. And maybe I was naive and it was totally right all along. But it just the 90s, you know, the post riots kind of felt like there was like a boom in L.A. and like an excitement. And I think it carried over for a while. But then the last like 10 years, it, it just felt completely real. I mean, like Mike Davis, it's one of those things where I, you know, I was like, how do you feel about being called a prophet? And he was like, well, it's just you have your ear to the ground. And I thought that was a really astute way. I mean, he's just like an incredible, like his, the depth of historical knowledge, the research, it, you know, he combined this sort of like literary flair with sort of like an academics, uh, you know, like depth of knowledge. And, you know, you could tell countless hours of the library. And he'd had this like fantastic career where he's like, oh, you know, a truck driver and like a labor organizer and like, I mean, he was, he was a total inspiration in a lot of ways. I I, I remember talking to him right after the pandemic hit because uh, I did a follow-up interview over, the, over Zoom because we did an interview before the pandemic and then um, we did one after. And, you know, he was like, look, these like these private equities like licking their chops, you know, and, and that's, I think, what ultimately like will be the fallout of, and, you know, he obviously predicted that really well is the fallout of the pandemic is going to be that, um, you know, these, these, people like the, you know, the powers that be, shall we say, will say that, oh, you know, they gave $2,000 to, you know, working people and blah, blah, blah. But like they gave hundreds of millions and billions of dollars to like the richest companies in the world who then were able to benefit from basically no interest rates, take this free money and just buy up everything. And now we're living in the aftermath where it is actual feudalism. And, and that has an impact on culture, right? Because like culture comes from like more often than not cities. I mean, I, I don't know what the solution is other than to just kind of eminent domain, like like large groups of private real estate and just like around me, you know, um, it, it like I've lived in the same neighborhood, like Los Feliz Silver Lake, like on the border of the two for like 15 years, you know, like a long time. And uh, it, it, at first it was like a really bohemian. It was like heavily uh, like Latino and uh, a lot of gay people. It was like the, one of the gay, like predominantly uh, historically famous neighborhood you know a side of this bar called the black cat um was which was actually the pre-stonewall like liberation thing um uh where it was like i think it was the first time in american life according to you know lore that um you know gay people fought back against police harassment and it's like right around the corner from yeah, where i live that's lived. in the mike davis book even isn't it it's in seven night on fire i think which is right. why i was yeah, like yeah. i know this yeah <laughs> yeah yeah and uh and needless to say now half of it is a shake shack Oh my God. <laughs> so you know what I mean? They just opened like half they half the 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 black cat is now a Shake Shack. It's you know, half a fucking the, Shake so Shack. It's always a Shake Shack. Yeah, it couldn't it couldn't even be an In and Out, which would have a yeah. little uh, Southern California kind yeah. of feel to it. We should uh, we should, can we ask you some more music questions? Of course, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, we just wanted to get a little bit into this kind of current state of rap um, because it seems to be that the 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 sense is that rap has kind of lost its dominance, which I think in a in a sheer numbers way that seems to be true in a kind of chart yeah. dominance way, um, and that there's a feeling that rap is now kind of 
either splintering or kind of scattering or sort of deterritorializing into these like hyperlocal scenes. It seems to be the way that it's it's being transmitted, at least to me as a reader from you know across the ocean. Um, so I'm just interested in in what you think about like you know if if rap's kind of cultural hegemony is over or how that will spill out in the next few years. Well, I mean, I, I see, I think there is a lot of like, that's really interesting to me, these little hyper regional scenes. And I would argue that's probably the most interesting thing in rap. And I'd probably argue it always was the most interesting thing in rap, whether you go, you know, even back to the early 90s, you know, like whether you had like Houston or mid 90s, you know, Houston and New York and LA and like, you know, Chicago had a kind of gestating scene. And, you know, there, there were all these kind of different like hotbeds. And uh, but like the reality is like all art goes through cycles. If you look at jazz, there are periods of jazz where jazz did like was kind of moribund for a few years. And then an artist will come through and kind of reinvigorate the form. And then kind of people follow. Unfortunately, in rap, I mean, we are dealing with a form of Holocaust, you know, in terms of the lives of some of the most like transformative artists, you know, of the generation. I mean, Pop Smoke was a generational artist. He was he was he was the one in New York. Draco was the one in L.A. Uh, and, you know, obviously it didn't get as much coverage, but there were, you know, a kid from Sacramento named Briss, who was kind of in Draco's lineage, was murdered, uh, I think, in 2020 or 2021. Uh, this kid, Young Sloby, was murdered last year, who was kind of the guy from Stockton, uh, which had kind of emerged as a hotbed. You have a guy like uh, Rio Deung OG, who to me is one of the was one of the most interesting Michigan rappers, is now in jail for a long time. You have O3 Greedo that goes to jail for five years in, in the in his prime. You have Young Thug, who's maybe past his prime a little bit, but still like such a inventive artist. You know, again potentially facing life in jail. Yeah, I mean, arguably and, the most influential of the last generation, right? Uh, like, I would I would argue that. Yeah, I would definitely argue that. Yeah. So, I mean, you've seen that. And not to say we've never seen that before. I mean, I think there was a period in the last decade where like Gucci Mane, T.I. and Lil Wayne and Boosie were all locked up. But like people want to pretend that art is removed from capitalism. But like, unfortunately, in this late of a stage of capitalism, the two are kind of seamlessly uh, intertwined. Uh, you you you're getting A&Rs that are signing kids off TikTok. You know, that matters. Um, I think like there is only one little Wayne, you know what I mean? Like that's great. Like little Wayne had this incredible two year run where he like put out 8,000 songs and like 4,500 of them were great. And that's <laughs> awesome that people can do that. But like, if you really look and like, of course there's jazz where, you know, Miles Davis was putting out like, you know, three classics in a two year run, but uh, more often than not, I think art like really takes time to gestate. And I think the kind of the fast paced thing has really impacted it. I think, um, TikTok has like probably a negative effect. I think artists are probably not like playing shows and places and like developing their live show. There's just all these different things. There's not like locuses. Um, you know, like I, I think about the 90s, you know, in LA and like obviously a lot of great stuff, but like I think of something like Project Bloat. You know, if you don't know, it was like this, like, a, like it's like almost like a rap graduate school kind of where like all these amazing rappers from all of the city would come and they would like freestyle against each other. And it was a very steel, sharpened steel, very much like, you know, the art, the highest value of the art um mattered and they almost had like an approach like jazz musicians you know i was reading and I, I do think that on some level there is maybe a value thing that has been lost in all of uh culture where um it, it, you know it's like mary it's a very much a slippery slope where it's just striving like i think about what kendrick lamar has done and like whether you love kendrick lamar whether you're kind of lukewarm on kendrick lamar there's something really inspiring to him about his desire he'll he's willing to go away for three or four years and reinvent himself and that takes a lot of courage. That obviously takes a lot of like financial independence to already be at that level. Um, but yeah, I haven't heard that many. I haven't heard an artist in a minute where I'm like, either I love, like, 
I remember when Little B came out, and I was just like, "The fuck is this?" Like, you know, you know what I mean? Like, I was like, and I don't think I fully got it for a while. I know it um, takes it takes and, a moment with Little yeah. B, and then yeah, and but that's cool. And um, but now I hear the artists that like you know I don't know. Let's like everyone was like hyped on like Ken Carson last month, and mm-hmm. like I didn't like I listened to it and like I wasn't like oh this is terrible. I wasn't mad at it. You know what I mean? It was like, yeah, I guess he's like kind of had like, but some talent there, but it just, to me, it sounded like, I'm like, yeah, he sounds a lot like Doug and Cardi. I'll put it this way. There's a lot of music I love that comes out every year. There are hundreds of rap songs. I like, but, and there, there's not support necessarily from indie labels the way that there used to be in rap. But I'm talking a long time ago. I mean, they're like, you know, I'm not just talking about, you know, your stones throws, your, your raucous records, your, your death juxes, you can also go to No Limit was an indie label, Cash yeah. Money was an indie label, Death Row was an indie label, yeah. Ruthless Records was an indie 100%. label, you know, and 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 then TDE again was was an independent label. And now, if you look at what's the, you know, obviously, like I have my own biases, but like um, Backwoods is probably universally regarded as like the best indie rap label, and that's you know an artist in his mid forties that has been through the grinder for so long, and no one really understood him at first, and you're, they're putting together a thing, and. Um, Again, that just doesn't feel like every it's a very go at it alone culture. Yeah. And uh even rap labels, you know, even like our as artist run labels, like you don't really see like the way that you even did that. Like you think of like in the last decade, I think of like Rick Ross kind of putting together all those artists or uh what Kanye did with good music. Mm-hmm. And and there's not really an analog for that in this day and age that I But I think you're largely right. And it's funny because there's actually been a massively similar thing in the UK with like the UK rap and drill stuff where there was this period it was super fertile and all these mostly kids like super super young artists were coming out and you had these like independent crews forming and all this cool stuff and then like everyone was just getting offered insane like any kid that had a popping video on youtube would just get offered like a 200k advance from a major and obviously they're going to take it right and it's like i don't know if it's a similar thing happening in the us but it feels like majors right now like you say they're signing people off tiktok and this stuff doesn't get the same amount of time to like gestate in not even the underground because it doesn't have to be underground music, but just in like an independent sector to like find its feet. It just gets snapped up so early now. It's just, and it, it look, I think like obviously like there are plenty of artists that just like they kind of have it, but like even, I don't know, it's hard. Like A&Ring like matters. Like you think about Young Thug, right? Who we've just been talking about. It's like, to me, what's the best Young Thug album? It's kind of when he was working with Birdman. It's like Rich Gang and Barter Six are probably the best Rich, you know, Young Thug albums because like you have kind of one of the greatest A&Rs ever, you know, it, that stuff does matter. And um, we are, you know, it's very easy to be like, we are a narcissistic culture, but it's also kind of true. And like, people will be like, well, we were narcissistic then, but I feel like everything I mean, it's like, it's always a continuum, right? Like, you know what I mean? Like you can, people will always be like, well, things were like that then. And you're like, okay, yeah, you're right. That was like, they were here and now they're here and now they're here. And I think we're kind of like playing in the ashes in a lot of ways. And it's like, there's always going to be some kind of mutant talent that's going to come along. And I I don't think hip hop is dead. I mean, I think like people thought that and like when Nas was saying it and like, look where, and then it kind of had a, a glory run. But I do think we are trapped in this kind of end of, like, I mean, look, Mark Fisher was right, right? You know, like the, like the Gramsci epigraph about, about the, the new world being stillborn is kind of true. We like, what was the last genre? 
that was like realistically it was dubstep. You know what I mean? And like before mm. the Americans ruined it, you know, or like, <laughs> what, oh wait, we tried with um, hyperpop, and like that was just like clearly like trying to make fetch happen as a genre. <laughs> and like I understand like there are playlists and like and then but like look like how much of the how much of it now is predicated on industry. So right, mm. there are two ways to there's three ways to really make it now as a, as a as a star. You either have the love of your hometown and you're a rapper and you get big on YouTube and like, you know, you're, you're from the streets, right? You're a TikTok person that just somehow goes viral. But even then, from what I'm told, those are increasingly rare. Or you're kind of an industry plant that they put you on these Spotify playlists and like before anyone, you, you don't hear the story of like, there's just not like a, you know, people are not able to tour around America the same way and kind of grind out their careers and build these fan bases slowly that you can't afford it. Well, well, the th- the thing that those three examples have in common as well is the reliance on basically existing platforms. So, like YouTube, yeah. TikTok, or Spotify plus your label equals what you've got to work with. So, you know what we were just talking about earlier with independent labels. Sure, that that required some kind of technological mediation, Facebook, MySpace, whatever was going on at the time. But the actual, you know, the original models that we're talking about are mixtapes sold out of actual vehicles, physical items. Oh. And like not to be complete like gr- Grandpa Simpson about the whole thing, but I think people have to see themselves as these, you know, individual like rise and grind brands they have to do whatever it takes to get their their music out there and to try and find a deal and that requires like complete reliance on these platforms and then as soon as those platforms change in any way like the algorithm whatever then then they're screwed and but that also applies to everything that applies to journalism as well right like that's basically applied to so many of the things that we're just talking about and and it'll be interesting to see now that even even Bandcamp turns out to be poison well no it's still functioning but you know it's it's in a bad way like what do we do beyond that because it seems like it requires so much extra you know knowledge effort diy mindedness like is there is there a way around having to rely on ultimately like five huge global companies that don't care about you at all i mean i've tried i've been trying to figure it out my whole career (laughs) like i i think like you have to kind of just like maybe get lucky and one of them gives you a chance at some point and then you kind of like leverage it and you kind of do a short-term deal and you use them to kind of build your fame and kind of like be like a ghost in the machine or, you know, kind of this like you Trojan horse it in and you're like, oh, you know, and then you can do it. Like, I mean, that's always been my dream is to sort of, you know, get either a book that sells well or like a documentary or a TV show or something and then just use it to be like, there's all this really cool stuff out here. Like, check it out. I, You know what I mean? Like, and, but. Yeah. But the issue is we're like, I think we've touched on it a little bit, but like we're in this age of just like hyper individualism. Right. And it's mm. like, yeah. I think that that comes with its own moral issues, but I think also it doesn't necessarily lend itself to great art and it doesn't lend itself to long careers. Like if you look at, I'm not saying people can't be genius auteurs, of course they can, but like a lot of the most successful ones had the right people around them. Yeah, or a wife. (laughs) <laughs> those beat poets yeah. who apparently didn't, didn't need any money they had no, wives cooking them dinner that, that, that is very true they had, no, we all they had need wives. a wife a we all need a, a wife that's what a I'm lot saying. of time the wives were working for the beat yeah. and a lot of those yeah. guys yeah they were kind of yeah, yeah. I mean Henry Miller was a total deadbeat you know until <laughs> until he got money and then actually shared it but yeah I mean there's just so many like factors in it all and it it like I don't know it does feel like the corporations kind of found a way to kind of the internet was like this great, like theoretically this great democratizing like possibility. Right. And then for a few years it was, and then like, but now I'm like, this is, I'm like, I say this as somebody I've now run 
an independent website. I've run an independent magazine. I've run an independent label. I've worked as a freelance journalist for basically almost everywhere. And I feel like there are there is very little hope unless you're a con man. And that is very demoralizing <laughs> to me because I'm like, because I've seen it, you know what I mean? And like I like I feel like I know what the the, the lies to say to people. You know what I mean? Like I could yeah. walk into the room and be like, you know, and like Shane Smith it. You know what I mean? And then you look at like, well, who made it? You're like, Shane Smith made it. That guy was a fucking con man. Like, you know what I mean? Sam Bankman freed on the other end is like a con man. Everyone just, you know, it's like I think about it and it's like we're such a credulous society. You know, I was thinking about this the other day and it's like, you know, again, like you're always going to Seymour Skinner, you know, Principal Skinner meme. You're always like am I a fool? Like, cause the internet is such a, like, it's such a powerful propaganda tool. And I don't just mean politically. I mean, just for art. I mean, it's like, I, that's what Kanye did, right? Kanye was like, I am going to be a propagandist. That's where he's like, I took things from Hitler. And you're like, yeah, in retrospect, you probably did because people were really weird about those Yeezys and they weren't that cool of shoes. And, um, except for the red October, so that's cool. But other than that, but, but yeah, like it, it just, I don't know, like I, 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 what kind of lies are required to kind of get like massive. I, 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 it, I feel like there are these places that maybe got in, in like you, like Gen X got in, right? Like mm-hmm. Gen X, like oh, yeah. you look at these guys, they, they were born at the just That's a great the, time. <laughs> yeah, they're just old enough to take advantage of all of the internet money and and, and enslave millennials. You know what I mean? Yeah. And like, oh, you're gonna get rich too, and like then they just took all the money, whether it's like Buzzfeed or Vice or like you know, whatever. And th- like, if you're a millennial, um, your experience, like if you're an older millennial, um, are we enslaved the Zoomers? Does that work? Yeah. Uh, well, do we, this, I don't, how do we control them? They're yeah. too powerful. No, we can't control you cannot them. enslave yeah. the Zoomers to their credit. You cannot like, they are not falling for it. They are totally blackpilled and they are just like, <laughs> we are not believing anything. You know, I don't know. Like I saw a poll where like half of them are like voting for Trump or something. And I'm like, I can't believe that's a real poll, but like also like, they're totally like meme lord nihilists. Like, imagine if your brain grew up in like, you know, your nurturing like amniotic fluid is like battery acid. Can you tell us a bit about your your sort of experiences doing this independent magazine, The Land? Because I I checked it out and I feel like maybe it's currently inactive. I don't know what happened with it, yes. but I'd really like to know. Yeah. I mean, clearly the goal, you know, we've said it to each other often enough. Tom and I like, let's. Wouldn't it be great to just have? 50 grand to do a magazine and obviously I mean in in my mind making a magazine and editing a magazine and like producing a magazine is one of the most incredibly creative exciting things that anybody could do um obviously obviously very difficult but what was your what was your thinking what was the vision and then like what's the current status yeah I mean yeah I mean I agree with you uh, I mean it was a dream to do the land I'd always you know that was I got to assign myself a Mike, an 8,000, 9,000 word Mike Davis Q&A. Like, no one's going to give me that. <laughs> um, I got to do it for uh, the writer John Reshi, um, and give somebody who I really admired and loved and was such a a fundamental and under-celebrated part of the Los Angeles, uh, like, literary world, a chance to kind of get their flowers and eat a big, beautiful spread. And, I, you know, I was lucky to have uh, several partners uh, in Jen Swan, who was my co-editor for most of the issues. We we did four of them, uh, including a little uh, kind of mini election magazine. And my other partner was uh, Evan Solano, who's like, he was the the kind of artistic mastermind behind it and made it look gorgeous. And um, yeah, I mean, we're all still friends. And basically what happened was, um, and like, hopefully there will be another issue at some point in the future. I mean, it's kind of on a, a hiatus, but I've always kind of been like, 
I, I was really inspired by Andre 3000 when I did that interview with him where he's like, and I was like, look, I have to ask you about Outcast because they're going to, you know what I mean? It's like, you you know, you yeah. edited stories and like, you know that like the editor is going to be like, did you ask him about oh, Outcast? Oh God, and you you know, know, like, you know. I had to do it with Jeff Barrow before, like, right. before just had questions. Yeah. Like they don't want to answer the <laughs> yeah. questions. Yeah, I'm like, I'm so sorry. I have to ask you this. I like, I like literally was like, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I didn't want to ask you this, but I, I just kind of have to. Uh, I know it's going to come from, you know, and um, but he was just like, I don't know where the wind will take me. He's like, I would never rule it out. And I was he's like, I don't know where I'm going. And I was like, that's real cool because you're, like, you're really like you're a really free artist. And, um, you know, obviously, you know, if anyone's earned it, it was Andre. I mean, to me, the first three Outcast albums like are like I was listening to them again this week and I was like, did anyone ever do anything better than this? No, like I'll take those over the, the you know, over Rubber Soul, Revolver and Sgt. Pepper any day of the week. It's the best album run in history. I like, I will 100% go with that. Ooh. If anyone oh, asks no, me we that can't question. start down that path. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. But, but yeah, so with the magazine, you know, with the LA Weekly got, it, again, this is when, um, there were so many things in my life that have just been, you know, especially journalistically that have just, you know, created like a profound heartbreak. The LA Weekly uh, being mm-hmm. bought, it was at the end of 2017, and I'd been I'd written for the LA Weekly since like 07. It was like literally like my first like foray into paid journalism. That Soldier Boy piece was in the LA Weekly, you know. And you know, for those first, I want to say like seven years of the LA Weekly was great. You know, I wasn't getting paid the amount of money that I should, and there would always be periodic like cutbacks and you know, someone would lay off. But I, I was able to write for them really consistently. And like, you know, if you look at like my room right now, it's it's still like a lot of LA Weekly covers, you know, whether it was Tyler the Creator or Mad Lib or DJ Quick or like especially quick and, and mad that were like heroes of mine, you know, and to get to put them on the cover and do this like 4,000 word story with a photo shoot. I mean, it was really inspiring and really creatively fulfilling for me. And, um, you know, basically got bought by these, like, for lack of a better word, they were like right-wing crypto fascist. It was very early Trump era. This guy has now bought, by the way, the village voice. It's, it's kind of like a spawn con kind of scheme at this point. And, um, they have done a lot of like right-wing stuff, you know, like, in very bizarre ways but um you know they failed like every other publication but in the wake of this i started to boycott uh of la weekly because i wanted to educate people and i just wanted to you know i wanted to make sure they couldn't kind of use the name of what we built and kind of like sell what we built and and have the reality be something completely different and, and dark and sinister and um you know myself and a bunch of other people were able to kind of you know successfully lead this boycott and then in the wake of it it came to the thing where you're like well what are you going to do you know there's like be negative all the time like you have to present ideas you have to kind of you have to present an alternative and i think this is something that like our generation and and the the younger generations need to kind of uh, like i haven't succeeded (laughs) but like you have to try and like we did this magazine and we put up four issues that i'm really proud of and like i sold all the ads you know I, i i edited i think like I think the last issue we did, I think I edited or wrote like 80% of the stories or something. Um, but, you know, obviously I had like amazing people helping me with it. Um, so I can't like, you know, take too much credit. But yeah, it was it was so validating. And I will say that like people really liked it. Like people really cared. People were really excited. But again, like we were like, we want to make this free. You know, I wanted to make it for the people. And then you realize you're like, this was pre-pandemic, right? Now paper has doubled. So to make the issue that let's say cost us like $35,000, maybe $40,000. And this was before the editors got paid because the editors didn't really make any money. And um, I would guess it would cost about $55,000 to do. So I don't know if it's like, you know, financially even possible. There have been talks and I'm hoping that I can kind of find some time to do another issue um, because, it, it, you know, it, it it was just one of those things where it's again, like it goes back to it. 
you just have to do the thing and you have to, you know, I know it's a trite thing to say, but you have to kind of divorce yourself from the results and you have to divorce yourself from like the expectations of getting rich. Cause if you want to get rich, like I would just say like, you know, like work for private equity, you know, or like go into real estate, like otherwise, like you're probably not, and you're gonna have to kind of be creative and hustle. And I mean, like I, I've hustled, you know what I mean? Like I still like when I get off the phone, like I'm going to write a bio, you know, like, I mean, I wouldn't call that hustling per se, but like, you know what I mean? I'm, I'm never too proud to like, you have to, you have to, there was one of my favorite quotes is like, sometimes you have to sell the shadow to sell the substance. And, um, you kind of just like, and again, that goes back to all the, you know, the marketing and the brand. I mean, it's horrible, right? Like, I feel like all artists now are forced to be kind of like these like hucksters and like the like burial to me is like my hero, you know, cause I'm just like, but I guarantee you, like we, you know, we talk about this kind of reality versus perception of burial and like, is burial rich? Like, I don't know if he comes from money yes. or something, but like, is burial rich? I think he will be now. Yeah. I yeah, so. I mean, I think he I think sells. So I think, I think he sells good. such insane units. Yeah. Like, I think he's one of the few people left, really? from what I understand. Oh yeah, he's like oh, yeah. by far Hyperdub's biggest selling artist. And also, it's like he gets synced all the time. He's on TV. Yeah, right? I was going to say. I think, mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of syncs. I mean, here anyway, <laughs> maybe not so much. Yeah, place, not in he, America. Yeah, but, like, nobody knows who Burial is here. Yeah, like, yeah, like, no, no. He's 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 fine. He's definitely fine. I think he's one of the few low people, overheads yeah. as well. You know, <laughs> that's great. That's great. He deserves it all. Yeah, I mean, to me, Burial and Madlib were like the two coolest ones. And like, I just don't think you really have, there are not like, you just now have to like sell yourself in such a way, because again, like they benefit burial. We talk about the blog era burial benefited from being like kind of one of the last ones in, Yeah, you know? Yeah, I don't think you yeah. could do that now. And the best, best kind of hype men in the sort of like Fisher Reynolds uh, vortex as well, like per- perfect. Totally. Timing. Yeah, totally. We, we should talk a little bit more about, about Passion Wise. Yes, we should. It's, That's true. Um, well, I mean, number one, it's 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 great that it's still there. It's still functioning. Um, <laughs> yeah, congratulations, a very good. Yeah, it's a beacon. It's a Somehow, beacon. some way. Yeah, I appreciate that. I guess there's uh, maybe it'd be too crude to say how exactly does that work then? Like, what? How, how are you managing to to succeed? What is your formula? And and have you have recent years like p- presented more of a, more of a challenge in terms of just keeping things afloat, or is it does it you know self sustaining? Yeah, well, I mean, success is probably the wrong word. Like, I've never really considered it the as success. The website is I mean, online. Is, that is, yeah, that exactly. is I was going to totally say. Right, yeah. um, well, at first it was, like, not that hard because, like, I don't know. It just seemed we had more time. <laughs> like, I maybe because I was yes. on social media. There was more time I know in the you past. Yeah. yeah, it's true. It, it just, I needed less money. You know, like, it, inflation wasn't as real. And mm-hmm. then, like... You know, there was a few years where I was like, I don't. I, I guess like I was making enough money freelancing and then I would... I did a couple like book project things and I would like pay someone a couple hundred dollars a month to just like put the website on, you know what I mean? To, to yeah. deal with the, I, and I would do all the edits, you know, and then yeah. we got a Patreon, you know, and I can like, I mean, I'm comfortable talking about it. I don't really want to put it on Twitter, but I'll talk about it on a podcast. I mean, the P- Patreon makes about like $1,600 a month. It's like mm-hmm. next to nothing. We, we finally got an ad guy. He just sold an ad. We maybe sold four ads this year. I mean, it's, there's no money in it. You know what I mean? I, I basically, I try to give at least half the money, but sometimes it ends up being 80 or 90%, depending on some months to the writers and the end. Like I have a couple, one person that helps me put up the blogs and I have uh, this amazingly uh, gifted uh, writer editor named Donna Claire, who's lately been helping me um, help with some of the edits. But yeah, I mean, it's, you know, like two nights ago, you know, from like 10, like we have this really amazing piece. It'll probably be up by the time it goes online. And it's this writer named um, Ron Rogers, who goes by the pen name, Jesse Taylor. And, um, it's a really tragic story. You know, his son, he had this incredible, incredible son who was 16 years old. I think Jesse's like in his, you know, in his forties now. And he had the 16 year old son who 
was kind of going to go on to be one of like, apparently some of the sweetest kid. He was like AP student of the year also happened to be probably he was going to be one of the fastest uh, milers or two mile runners in like America. Like he might've gone to the Olympics. I mean, the, the, you know, he was getting stuck. He was 16 years old and about to get offered a scholarship offers from uh, Oregon and Stanford. I mean, just like, like one of these, like, how are you like this as a kid? And he tragically died in a car accident, 16 years old. And um, for the last two years, you know, uh, Ron has obviously been grieving. And there was a separate incident that, you know, he he got clubbed by um, an unhoused person, like, uh, and like almost died. And I mean, like, just an unspeakable, oh, um, you know, I, I'm only talking about this, you know, because it's in the article, but um, just unspeakable tragedies to happen, you know, back to back to back. And, you know, he persevered and the article is kind of about grieving and, the playlist that helped him kind of go through it and kind of just life lessons that he learned from having to deal with like such, you know, incredibly unthinkably arduous things. And, um, yeah, I mean, that's why I guess it exists, you know, every now and then, like we, we were able to have a, we, you know, I, I don't want to say we solved Mac Dre's murder because, you know, it's still unsolved, but it's the closest thing that anybody has gotten to finding the truth. And, and this came about, uh, about three years ago when he was, it was a college, he was in college at the time, university of Oregon, uh, Don, Donnie Morrison, uh, and he came to me with an email like out of the blue being like, Hey, uh, uh, like, you know, and this, he's some guy I noticed. I was like, he's like this guy, like favorites on my tweets, you know, like who is this person, <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. but it was like university of Oregon. I didn't know that he was like kind of had gone back to school and he was a little bit older and a little wiser and, you know, he kind of knew how to report a little bit, you know? And he's like, can I do a story about uh Mac Dre's murder? And I, yeah, sure. I figured it'd be like some, you know, 1000 word piece that I'd probably have to be like, I don't even know what to do with it. This is like so rough. And like, I guess I'm gonna have to spend like three days editing this piece out of like loss of my sanity. And he comes back to me like six months later. And he's like, do you have a budget for like uh, ordering documents from the Kansas City Police Department? And I was like, no, like, because I didn't know he'd never written for me. And I was like, I can't give some writer I don't know. And then I was like, okay, well, this guy's really into it. And then he comes back like three months later. And he's like, here is the outline of a piece that basically may have solved the murder of one of the greatest rappers in history. And you're like, holy shit, you know, and like that to me. And like, if my site didn't exist, I don't think that would have happened because I think like it needs to be a place. And, you know, the same thing with, with Ron's piece about his, and, you know, I don't know, it's really hard and it gets harder every year. I have less time, you know, one day I would like to have like kids and I don't know how I could be a parent and like, run this website maybe i would love i always was like dreaming that there'd be like some like really you know hungry 25 year old that would be like let me take it off your hands and i'd be like great i'll be the editor emeritus and you can you know change the name or make it just pow i've always been meaning to make a pow for like <laughs> years but i'm just like so like this is like my life is just like 55 to do lists you know trying to frantically cross them off and um you know the older i get um the more i try to remember who i used to be and hope that I still am you know what I mean and it's mm. like I want to always remember the mentality of the kid that like really just wanted to be a writer and didn't care and like knew that like when he set off on this journey it was going to be like kind of difficult and 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 not linear I remember when I when I started the blog and like traffic has never really been our strong suit to be honest with you it's never really been a juggernaut it does well but not well enough to really make money off of but I remember the first day I got like a hundred clicks back when they had like a site meter thing. Like, you know, you'd, you'd plug in the site meter and I got like a hundred clicks and I was like, oh man, I got a hundred clicks today. Or like, I got like a hyperlink from a, like a cool blog in like 2006 or something. And 
Yeah, I don't know. I think it's important to kind of retain that. Um, you know, it's like, you know, there's like that famous like Picasso cliche about like, you know, all like uh, all children are artists. Like it's just when you become an adult, how do you, you know, kind of I'm butchering it, but it's like, how do you still stay a child, you know, as an adult without being like kind of this, you know, obviously Picasso was kind of a misbehaved person. So maybe he was a little bit too much of a child in some respects. But yeah, you want to kind of like keep that going. And I don't know, like I I'm a bad quitter. And mm. I feel like if I shut down the site, it would just kind of like be, I'm like really, aff- I don't like death. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like everything in me is sort of like motivated probably by this like desire to avoid death. And I feel like maybe if the site went, it'd be like a death and maybe, you know, not to be like place too much importance on the site. Cause you know, it is just a blog, but it would feel like definitely a death of, uh, of, an era, you know, and I feel like yeah. I, you know, I'm, I'm friends with Justin Gage who does aquarium drunkard, which is like probably, um, uh, he, he's always been like an inspiration to me for what he does with that site. And, you know, um, even him doing the label, like I was like, Oh, Justin's doing it. Like maybe you should consider that. And, um, yeah, I think it's just like, it's important to think, I, I think independent media is so valuable. I think independent art, like labels are so valuable. And, uh, you know, I know you guys obviously can relate, but it's just been watching, it, them fall by the wayside one by one and, and like conglomerates like they're not interested in art they're not interested in quality they're just interested in money and just i don't know i feel like our brains have also been terraformed you know not to be like one of these like do you know the magazine ad busters yeah a, a, yeah. a vintage so, one yes. yeah so we like when when I was like younger, I remember I used to get like ad busters and be oh, like, wow. oh, these guys are so insufferable. I didn't buy it. Like I just flipped through it to the market or something. I'd be like, the fuck is wrong with you? And now I'm like, I'm older and I'm like, God, they, they were, were kind of right. all right. About, they were right. <laughs> I was like, I was like, I think they might have been right for the wrong reason sometimes, yeah. but they were definitely right. Commercials do and, suck. Stop buying stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, it um, and look, like I'm again like a total hypocrite, you know, like I I'm not like some like aesthetic monk that like, you know, lives in, you know, you know, I'm not living in a house as you can see, but like, I'm not uh, living, you know, in a tenement either. And um, I'm really grateful that I'm able to survive. And I guess like that's sort of, uh, you know, I was like, I was like talking, I, you know, like, I'm, I'm sure everyone like, you know, like at some point or another has gone to a therapist and I was like, you know, complaining in therapy. And I was like, you know, what, what the fuck? And he just goes, sometimes you kind of just have to adjust your expectations. And I was like, yeah, you're probably right. Like, he's like, maybe you will never own a house or something. Yeah. And like, that's how people are in New York. That's how people are in London a lot mm. of the time. And like, you know, it's like, I don't know, like, there's that great Dylan quote. He's like, where it's like, you know, a person is a success when they go to sleep, at, when they wake up in the morning and they go to sleep at night and in between they get to do everything they want. And I wouldn't say I'm there, like, or I've probably never been there, but I'm not as far from it as, you know, I, I'm closer to it than I, when I, when I began. And I have to kind of like view that, I guess, in some form of success. I also think it's really important to remember that like success is also touching people and to go back to those, totally. well, both examples you're talking about of those articles in, in POW, right? If you hadn't fostered this thing that isn't only a great blog, but it has this community around it, like they potentially wouldn't feel comfortable pitching you those ideas. Mm. And Definitely. that's also success. I think it's important totally. to keep sight of that. Yeah, I think that's maybe the thing. And I hope that like uh, the Gen Z people will um, like, I think the excessive online nature of our lives uh, has just made us forget like how important and like gratifying community is. And um, with the P- there's nothing like to me, like one of the most 
wonderful things is like when I'll see like POW writers hanging out in a different city or becoming best friends or something. And I'm like, that's really cool. Like you were able to help foster that in some way and be a connector or, um, you, you know, of the label, I'll see like the artist being like, you know, damn, that artist you're working with is dope. And then I'll reach out to them and they'll do a song together. And you're like, cool. Well, that, that, that's like valuable. And, um, like, I think we like place too much of a value sort of, as you're saying, like, I don't know the most meaningful things, like or I'll be DJing sometimes and, um, somebody will come up to me and like, have like this, like weird, weirdly affecting drunken conversation with me <laughs> or, or like there was this, uh, writer or, uh, he's a rapper slash like, you know, just internet person. And he sent me after the grateful dead piece, he sent me, his dad was, um, his dad and his mom actually edited a Grateful Dead magazine in the uh, the oh, early nineties, wow. wow, okay. and like they they got married, and like his dad actually wrote um like his dad's name is Blair Jackson, uh, Kyle Jackson. Uh, shout out to Kyle Jackson. I think he's Navocado. Um, and uh, but he he like wrote me like the most like beautiful letter I've ever received, and sent me copies of his dad's magazines, and like I mean it was like a beautiful handwritten letter, and. You know, I'm not like the crying type person, but if I definitely was the crying type person, I would like burst into tears because it just and it was like about like, you know, my career and like, he, you know, he followed the land and the website and like different stories I'd done, uh, like not to be super corny, but like I just felt like very grateful that like anyone had been following or sometimes someone will like mention something. They're like, I remember you did this thing in 2009. And I'm like, damn, that's yeah. tight. It You're wasn't like, I don't. nothing. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I totally I remember nothing. I'm like, I did that. I said that. You know, like, sounds like something I would say, you know. <laughs> Need to actually quickly shout out uh, Jen Walton, who does our theme music for the podcast, who's a big deadhead and just did um awesome. just did a three hour um, NTS special on The Grateful Dead. I like, I feel like I listened to that, but I need to go back and listen to that again. I just kind of want to talk about your actual writing for a second, because we've talked a lot about the, the biggest structural things. But, you know, fundamentally, I just think you are the best music writer that we have. Uh, like, I really do, because partly because Agreed, of, of the... That's so nice. Thank you. Your reporting ability and the stories that you've written. But on the sentence level, you are a great prose stylist also. And I guess I have two questions on that. Uh, one thing, we, we we dug up this this quote, um, which I think you said about like the very early days of POW, which was like, at first it was just these misanthropic, tasteless rants that are just horrible. I'm a firm believer that you shouldn't be judged for anything you write until you're 30. And we were like, Yes, yeah, that makes sense because we came up in you know print times like all of the things yeah. that the, the first five years of everything I wrote was in like print mags that don't exist anymore. Great, oh yeah, um, and I guess two things really is what like I'd love to know when you first felt like you had something that you you wanted people to look at forever that where you kind of find your voice in some way, and also who for you are your uh, the, the writers that you've the, you've really looked up to and that you've wanted to kind of channel into your writing on the page. Well, first off, thank you. That's that's so flattering, especially from you guys. So that's was, the like, end uh, now. The end no, of the fan mail. No, I, I it means like yeah. No, I mean I honestly um, I don't know. Like I started writing this book when I was like twenty, you know, and I, I'm like I guess I was really delusional then. Like I had like this like youthful. Wait, is the the book that you're working on now is the same book that you? No, no, no. But I came. No, no, but this was like a book about my friend that died. And but but the idea okay, for so the waiting for Britney Spears book came to me, I think when I was like 23 and it just took me forever to figure out how to write it. Like I had the title, I have like old journals, you know, like I, for me, writing is like kind of my, it's like my everything, you know, it is, I, I, 
it I, I it's like I can't express it. I mean, I could only probably write it. Otherwise, it sounds kind of hopelessly inarticulate. <laughs> you know, you say it just sounds like totally uh, you know, it would take me like hours to think of something that doesn't sound completely uh cliched, but um, and hopefully even then. But yeah, I mean, I started writing this book, and then I think um with music writing, I mean, I or like with all writing, you know, I think you're like it's like you go through an apprenticeship, right? Where you're like you know, I, I wanted at one point I wanted to write like, you know, my influences are probably like pretty basic. You know, it's like I wanted to be F. Scott Fitzgerald at one point. I wanted to be J.D. Salinger at one point. I wanted to be Hunter Thompson. And then I wanted to be Joan Didion and then Tom Wolfe and then like Raymond Chandler. And like then, you know, all the Allen Ginsberg, Gary Snyder, you know, John Reshi. And then E. Babbitt's like I was like, oh, my God, E. Babbitt's like, <laughs> you know, he's a, I discovered E. Babbitt's and I was like, jam that like I was like, she's the LA writer that I've been like waiting for my whole life to read. Um, and then, you know, I was like, God, I hate Nathaniel West now, you know, Day of Locust is terrible. Um, Babbitt. I find myself of, hating Joan Didion in the same way now. Where I'm just like, this is intolerable. She is not fun. No, <laughs> she's wanna, not fun. I don't want to hang around with her anymore. <laughs> but I just reread Play It As It Lays and I was like, damn. Like I like the first time I read it, I was like, yeah, this is good. And then like, I just reread it and I was like, actually, she's incredible. I was like, God, <laughs> this is so good. Because like what she leaves out is just like, that's like what has been my problem as a writer, not to like totally sidetrack like the question, but it's like, what do you leave out? And there's like so much importance in that. And like, I'm just such a maximalist. And like, that is like, I'm trying to kind of like work on like my ticks and my cliches. And like, you know, it was funny, like, uh, this is kind of a roundabout thing, but I did a piece, uh, actually, I don't think anyone saw it. Well, some people saw it if they got the magazine County Highway. It's this really cool print magazine, uh, that this, uh, writer, David Samuels, uh, launched and, uh, it's it's really cool. It's kind of about like everything in LA outside of LA and New York. And it's sort of they he sent me to Joshua Tree, you know, I to write my typical death of the Joshua Tree dream. And, you know, I ran into all these eccentric characters. And I've had a lot of, you know, you you can hear me talk. So I'm just like, I always like make fun of, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Orange County where it's Jack Black's like, I don't know. I took a hat that goes, I'm like just one of those people that is always, you know, rambling and thinking of thoughts. But um I, uh, I wrote this whole like long article and, um, I don't know, it, I, I've always wanted to kind of like write books that mattered and, um, kind of hopefully capture this like time. Cause it's like so fleeting and, and like frail and like, it, it's always gone. And I guess like, what is like a writer trying to do if not like, kind of like, you know, I always think about that Gatsby quote where it's like, um, you can't change the past. And he's like, of course you can, old sport. And like, there's all that, that, that to me is like this, like great conflict of all of our, at least my life, you know, where it's like, I'm always like trying to like look through my past and like, how can I like change it and refract it in a way where it like kind of makes sense to me. And I, you know, like I'm doing a book with Danny Brown, uh, like kind Amazing. of writing a book with him. Mm. Yeah. And then, oh, um, nice. So I'm doing that. Like a and then, yeah. Like, it'll be kind of like a, like a memoir type thing i think i imagine as, a, but as, like a, a, as like a ghostwriter or a i mean of... like i'm gonna be built on it i'm gonna be like it's gonna be a collaboration yeah. like I'm, i don't want to make it like a world of danny brown so i'm gonna be hopefully like make it so it's like kind of somewhere between like prodigy from mob deep's autobiography mixed with like the wu-tang manual maybe with like the ego trip book of lists beastie boys book those are kind of the things because he's such a fun intelligent guy and i didn't really want to do a book with anybody but I, they I, I it came to me and i was like well if there were you know i've always said like the only person that I'd ever want to do a book with like that would be like Ghostface but um <laughs> probably Danny Brown would also be on the the very very short list but um yeah and then I really want to do a book on um the Draco thing I'm I'm you know I 
like I haven't talked about it publicly, but whatever. I mean, if someone's this deep in the podcast and like they're interested, um, <laughs> but like, yeah, yeah, I mean, I've been, uh, it hasn't been announced yet, but I'm, I have been filming stuff for a Draco documentary, um, which I would co-direct. Um, I don't want to say like there are, I shouldn't announce who's involved, but like there have been contracts with like a very, very huge uh, hip hop name to be an executive producer on it. So that that's really exciting. And we'll probably announce that uh, early next year. And um, I want to write a book about it too, because that, you know, uh, that to me is like kind of one of the also great tragedies. Like I feel like, um, I don't know. I feel like that, that story, obviously, you know, we talk about for, a million hours, but it was just one of those things where I felt very, um, I don't know, like life feels so like, I'm like not a religious person. I'm not, I'm not really, I mean, I could tell you I'm a spiritual person, but like, I don't think I'm really that spiritual person. You know what I mean? I'm not like lighting candles and like meditating off a mountain, but like sometimes maybe I am, but like, I don't, I, I, you know what I mean? Whatever there is, is a God. Just like, say I you do like, yoga, Jeff. It's fine. I do. I do do yoga. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I will do yoga later today, actually. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I do got a Buddha in my room and some incense, you know, so I'm like, I definitely am Southern California, but I'm not really an astrology person. So like, there's a line. Exactly. There's, there's got to be a line and yeah. it's astrology is the line. Astral- yeah. yeah. Which, uh, you know, a lot of people are going to be like, turn this podcast off. Um, but with the Draco thing, yeah, I just felt like I was like, that was very, um, there have been some things in my life that I feel like, uh, you kind of have to find meaning. You kind of have to build a narrative for yourself. You kind of have to like treat yourself as like, you know, on the, you know, on this weird, like Joseph Campbell kind of like, I mean, I don't know. I'm always trying to live up to the ideals that I'm always failing to live up to, but in terms of Draco, it was like, you know, it came to me and like, here was this person who like happened to, in my opinion, to be. I think the, I, you know, honestly, like I have have no objectivity, but I think Draco was the best rapper of his generation. Like you, you know, maybe him, Kendrick, Thug, Future, those are like Greedo, Danny Brown, like it, it, like whatever you want to go in that way. But like, for me, obviously I knew him the way I did. So I would say Draco, but, um, yeah, I mean, just like to be able to like, and then go to court and like develop this friendship with somebody and then to help you know, in some way get him freed. Cause I, you know, like people have told me that I, they think I did. And, you know, I, I hope hopefully in some small way, like if not, it got him in the New Yorker, you know, my, like I helped get him in the New Yorker and he was covered in the Atlantic. So this was a story that nobody was telling. I mean, he was really left for dead in jail. And um, then to kind of be there when he got killed, um, I felt like it was like kind of one of those things where it's like, it felt like, one of those stories where like everybody gets killed and they're like the one per- they're like you have to tell the story yeah, and like obviously yeah, a lot of people yeah, survive yeah. but like i i i've spent a lot of the last two years you know because we're coming up in like two years since he was killed like um kind of going back and forth you know and, and like you know there's no happiness or gratitude certainly but um like if somebody had to be there i'm happy i was there so i could at least tell the story in a way like from like you know just with hopefully like i mean i i never would pretend to be totally objective but to be able to tell it with hopefully some clarity and insight and you know that's it's still an unsolved murder and that that's kind of the next thing that after this this britney book i really um after the end of the danny book is done um that'll probably take up my first six months of next after year that, but, and then after that book and then yeah so <laughs> yeah i have like four no, I have titles yeah. i have titles <laughs> no yeah, yeah yeah there's gonna be one called the world's oldest millennial um <laughs> like uh there's a lot of um a lot of titles i have going on in my head yeah so um yeah, it's funny. We had, um, I don't know if you're familiar with Sorry Records. It's this like New York dance label. Um, but we had them on one of the episodes we've also recorded. We had them on. And their one piece of advice for anyone running a label was just never stop. Right. And I think there's something in that. Totally. I mean, like, yeah. And like, it. Keep, I, I keep going. 
be just always try to do good work when you can and don't beat your don't be too hard on yourself when you can't you know like you you know like people deep down know what is right and what is wrong and we forget that because like we get like so hyped up by what what the new cool thing is or like we're easily sold it's like you should fucking question everything like you should not be orthodox in your beliefs you should not be a purist but you should like kind of try to retain your integrity right like because integrity is essential but purism is poisonous you know Try to build a community if you can, no matter what community it is, whether it's like a website, whether it's your painter, whether it's like even a book club or something. And it's like, because the thing is that like the internet is just a tool. It is not a desk, you know, and it can be a destination, but it probably shouldn't be. It probably should just be the thing that gets you to the actual real thing. And um, I think too much of the time, you know, and I, I don't blame anyone, but these like generations have now been grown up where the internet is the thing. And it, and, and it just isn't. And it can't be because the thing is the real life that we're inhabiting. And I think that's like the thing, you know, people always say, go touch grass. And like, that's a little easy, but it, it is, you know, true to a certain extent. But it's like, go outside, go to a club night, like pay $8, support a local band, buy the record if you feel up to it, buy the t-shirt if you feel up to it. Like, you know, start a night. Like, don't feel bad about yourself if no one comes, you know start a website, write, uh, write in isolation for a while just to get better, you know, like go to a book reading and like interact with an author that might, you know, maybe have only sold like 500 copies, but maybe your interaction with them will keep going. You know, these are the things that like allow us to survive and be human. And I think right now it's, you know, we're fighting against the machines and anything that you can do to be more human is vital and essential and like, uh, will kind of raise your mood and hopefully allow us to, you know, tolerate living on this kind of burning chaotic world. Mic there drop. There's there a positive note to end on. There we go. There we go. <laughs> okay, we do have Hell one, very very, qu- one very, very quick bonus question because we've got in the habit of asking people. Tom. Yes. Us, yeah. Um, so we've just started asking, although maybe in your case it should be a film and a book. Just, um, no? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Sorry, yeah. I thought you were vetoing. No, 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 like, not at all. Not at no, all. we've just started asking people for a recent film recommendation. What film should we watch? Yeah. <laughs> I like my favorite movie. You know, I don't know how many people have seen it. It's like the Long Goodbye. Oh, um, I don't know if you guys. I, do you know what? That is currently it. top, top of my movie watch list. I'm not even getting. I I am a huge Elliot Gould fanatic. I think he's like. I just like I like I that's I saw that movie for the first time like ten years ago. And I was like. I, I see myself in a movie. It's like this like stoner, like kind of bumbling, like Jewish version of Raymond Chandler, like moving through LA. And he's got like a cat that's always yelling at him. <laughs> and he's just like, and he's just like trying to be like a decent person in a fucking world like that is beset with corruption. And, you know, there's like a great fake Ernest Hemingway writer parody. And he's always looking for his cat. And he's just kind of <laughs> mumbling and got it incoherent. And I'm like, that's you. <laughs> you it's know? me. Um, yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. And, yeah. And a book, um, John Reshi told me about, uh, and I, I knew him, this writer named William Styron. And, um, you know, he's very famous for writing Sophie's Choice. And uh, he wrote the uh, autobiography of Nat Turner, which uh, is, is, is you know, problematic, but like a really good book, actually. Uh, and, but he was talking about William Styron's first book, John Reshi was, uh, called Lie Down in Darkness. And it's about this kind of like decaying alcoholic kind of family in um, Virginia in the 50s. And, um, William Styron wrote it when he was like 25 years old and the beauty of the writing, the depth of thought, uh, kind of, there's like kind of really kind of experimental avant-garde thing that doesn't quite work, but I just love the idea of him doing it. And just like, it, it kind of captures like, it's, it's almost like very like Faulkner Fitzgerald kind of, but like, he's a writer that nobody knows anymore. And he hasn't held up because William Styron, you know, did, doesn't have a sexy press photo and, you know, isn't like, 
you know, there's no, he wasn't a part of any literary movement and, you know, he didn't do drugs to my knowledge or like he wasn't, you know, he, he was just like depressed. Like he wrote a landmark book later on about his like uh, crippling depression. Um, but you know, he was a real, real, real genius. And, um, so yeah, I think those are the people that we, I love the people that like slip through the cracks. And, um, I think like, hopefully I'm trying to be somebody, you know, obviously in my own career, I don't want to be somebody that slips through the cracks, but I do think it's the duty of everybody who cares to kind of big up these people that maybe might be forgotten by history, but, but, but shouldn't be. And yeah, so that's, uh, always kind of part of my mission in some way too. Right. Thank you so much, Jeff. Thank you very, very much for taking part. Cool. Thank you guys. Yeah, this was, this was a pleasure. Yeah.